Dance of Gods, Book One, Spell of Catastrophe, written and read by Mayor Alan Brenner. Chapter 18, Repercussions. At last, thought the lion of the Ulvan Plain as he bounded up yet another flight of stairs, leaving behind him yet another trio of guards sinking slowly to the floor, the blood of dripping swords. The business had started as a pain in the neck, but now he was into the good part. He hadn't had so much fun since the last time he'd knocked heads in a bar fight on a trade mission to Dressed Claver. The lion had come around to the admission that his runt son, Jertan, had not done badly. Of course, it had taken the satisfaction of killing or maiming a dozen or two of Carr's guardsmen to put him in the proper frame of mind, but after all, what were guardsmen for, anyway? And ahead of him now, at the top of the stairs, was the door to Carr's private apartments. Jertan's father leapt powerfully up the steps, taking them two and three at a time, twirling his nicked indented sword in absent spirals at his side. He reached the top, landing on both feet with a powerful thud that shook the short balcony. In front of him was the door. At the other end of the balcony, cowering intelligently against the wall, were four guards. The lion bared his teeth at them and growled. One of the guards grinned weakly back at him and tossed something across the floor. It was a key, the key to Carr's door. The lion's snarl widened. He strode across to the door, kicking the key contemptuously out of the way, planted one booted foot on the floor, and raised the other sole first. His mighty thews, though slightly stiffened these days through lack of sufficient use, nonetheless strained, his whole body contracting forcefully, his foot exploded against the door, and with a giant crash, whoop, the lock tore completely loose from the heavy wood panels. Part of the stone door frame disappeared in a sudden cloud of gritty dust, and the door smashed open. The lion sprang after it into the room. The antechamber was the receiving room of the venerants. The far wall held a wide, expansive window looking west across the river and over the city. The curtains were open. In front of the window was a large desk. At the desk, with his back to the door, gazing out at the city, sat the slight, rather sallow form of Carr, his head propped on his hands. It was Oskin Yale, Carr said quietly. Oskin Yale made me do it. Then he's dead meat, too, snarled Jerton's father. Who the hell is he? I think you're going to be a little late for him. The lion looked up, following the direction of Carr's gaze. With the curfew and the late hour, Rusing Ovaya was quiet, the dark broken across most of the city only by the glow of the occasional street lamps. Near the north wall, the situation was different. A low hill in the surrounding neighborhood stood out in powerful reds, bright as the light of day, in the heat of a fountain of flame twisting high into the air. "'That's Yali's place over there,' Carr said." I don't know what he is, not really, but from the way he killed my father and trapped me, I know he's just oozing with power. Anybody who could hit him like that, Carr nodded out at the scene, is bound to be even worse. A ball of fire rolled upward from the Tower of Flames and arched out over the city. The ball was leaving a dying trail behind it in swooping, looping curls, and the trail only emphasized its path, toward the river, toward the Palace of the Venerants toward the lion and the watching car. The ball swelled in their vision and took on added detail. Sorcery, damn it, 
snapped the lion. There's always sorcery. I hate... Look, Carr said, if it's all the same to you, I'd just as soon you kill me before that thing gets here. I'd rather face a sword. Jerton's father scowled down at him. Carr didn't seem half the oath he remembered. If he was telling the truth, it sounded like he'd learned something from his experiences. The old venerance was gone now, and the place still needed somebody in charge. Maybe Carr wouldn't be a bad choice after all. On the other hand, he kept the lion pinned up in the dungeon for days. The lion raised his sword. That's strange, Carr said. It seems to be stopping. The lion looked back up. Carr was right. The ball of flame, now over the river channel between the docks and their position, had bent around in a tight circle low above the surface of the water. It cast a sullen red light across the river swells. The window glass rattled in its frame. A low wind began to rise. Look, fellow, said the man who burned down buildings. You've got to get away from here. This whole neighborhood could go up. Shah, lying full length on the ground, with one hand pressed to his chest, his head propped up against the base of a wall, was breathing with difficulty through his open mouth. He opened one eye, looked up at the arsonist, and nodded. He reached up an arm, and the arsonist pulled him to his feet. The entrance to an alley was visible just to the west along the street. They began to stumble toward it. "'What's the matter with you, anyway?' the arsonist said." We received the dooms we know, Shaw said testily. His ankles felt boggy. What dooms? What are you talking about? When I conjure... Three words, Shaw thought, and I'm out of breath. What a mortifying condition. He started again. When I conjure, I am inflicted with a backlash proportional to the magnitude of the work. He put a hand against the building wall at the entrance to the alley, leaned over, and panted. Unfortunately, he managed, that isn't a whole curse. The arsonist was already almost lost in the shadows deeper in the alley, but Shaw could see him pause and turn his head. What do you mean, that's not the whole curse? There's a part that involves my sister. Salzine Shaw. The voice came out of the empty air over the arsonist's head in a powerful, hollow echo. The arsonist clapped his arms over his head and fell over into a pile of trash. A flight of pigeons behind Shaw in the street floppered into the air. Argh, Shaw thought. What timing, what wonderful timing. What is that? wailed the arsonist. Shaw sagged to the ground, propping his back up against the corner of the building. Eden, my sister, Zalzine Shaw. A cornice cracked and dropped to the cobblestones, shattering into dust and shards of chunky plaster. Oh, thanks for getting us out of there and everything, muttered the man who burned down buildings, struggling to his feet. But I'm going to take off now. He broke into a run and vanished down the alley. Was that a friend of yours? Purely a matter of circumstance, Shaw gasped. How's the family? They ask about you, Eden said, and they want to annoy me. A row of windows overhead exploded out in a liquid cloud of twinkling fire points. 
Shaw waited for the crashing and tinkling to settle themselves out against the roar of the spreading fire down the block. He took a deep breath, let it out slowly around the giant hand in his chest. If you keep this up, Rusingovaya may sue you for renovation costs. They're welcome to try. By the looks of things, you're doing pretty well in that line yourself. There's no need to act so implacable. Why not sit down, have a drink, or a bowl of hot soup or something? In a sudden gust, a flurry of leaves from the street and a cloud of ash blew past Shaw into the alley. That's curious, Shaw mumbled. The leaves were going in the wrong direction. Things emanate out of the contact point, he thought. They don't blow into it. Then he realized that the gust was not due to Eden. It was a new, different wind starting to come up. Feeling rather poorly, aren't you? You know the curse. Yes, said Eden. I do indeed. What made you do it this time? The voice thundered along the narrow, confined space. Houses on either side of the alley lurched against each other, sending pieces of fractured façade crashing down onto the piles of trash. The wall jerked at Shah's back and shoved him sprawling into the street. Behind him, the wind was growing into an actual howl. "'That isn't your wind, is it?' Shah said. Eden paused. "'No,' she said. "'It's not. Just what is going on there?' "'A mad god.' I think we're about to see what he's going to do next. Shaw took another breath. Look, Eden, you'd better get on with it if you still want to have a live victim to harass. Linked to the curse that incapacitated Shaw whenever he used magic was an additional kicker. Shaw and his sister were cursed to being enemies and to mounting raids on each other whenever feasible. It wasn't usually feasible. Eden could only detect Shaw when Shaw had activated his power for some conjuration, and when she couldn't detect him, she generally couldn't attack. On the other hand, that also meant that Eden was able to pounce on Shaw when he was at his weakest. He had never been quite this weak before, either. It was a fine arrangement for families who liked such things. In the society where they'd grown up, infighting and internecine discord were the glue of basic social interaction. For Eden and Zalzine Shah, though, there was one problem. They'd always liked each other. Contact is slipping. Interference. What was Eden trying? They had found loopholes before, but the curse administrator was very sticky about letting curse parties get away with anything. He was fairly implacable himself. Lightning crashed in the direction of the river. A seagull screeched overhead, then swooped down out of the darkness and landed next to Shaw. It waddled up to his face and eyed him. Shaw eyed it back. Eden's voice at the contact zone said something completely unintelligible. Then a globule of milky white looped unexpectedly out of the contact point, dropped toward Shaw, and burst. What's that? Churton said suddenly. "'What's what?' said Tildemir. She dropped her end of the final guard trooper they were dragging into his storeroom and straightened up. The man's head fell back and thudded onto the stone floor. Churton had an arm out, supporting himself against the doorframe, and was staring with a blank look into space. His mouth was sagging. 
it's the music. It was going along kind of hopeful and zingy, and then out of nowhere it picks up these low, deep, shuddery organ chords. Oom, 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 oom. Just getting slower and lower and slower and slower. I mean, I mean, the music's mostly shaking. It's too low to even hear right. More like an earthquake with rhythm than music with notes. It feels like something terrible's about to happen. The sheer level of destruction was the only thing that saved Max. The roaring built in his head as the weight of the collapsed wall ground him into the rock. The water surged over his face. He tried to move his hand in a gesture of power, but the rubble held it pinned in its place. Then, suddenly, with an abrupt slurping sound, the water ebbed. Max coughed, a desperate, racking cough, sucking dusty air into his lungs against the pressure of the debris on his chest. The impact of the rubble on the sewer had opened a chasm in the facing stones, letting the water and sludge drain away into a cavity in the earth. And not a moment too soon, either. Max's mind began to clear. Far overhead, he felt a terrible presence lift. The death was taking off. Shaw must have been able to do something. That would be a great, if temporary, help to Max and the rest of the neighborhood, but implied nothing good about Shaw's own probable state. The death was still in the vicinity, too. Max could feel him out there somewhere, radiating his mad anger, and somebody was still going to have to deal with him. Unless another useful person unexpectedly showed up to take on the job, that somebody was going to have to be Max. At least he'd have to try. Of course, Max had a more immediate problem. The first thing he had to do was get out of the building before he got crushed or fried from the approaching fire, or both. He might be able to blow the rubble off with magic. If he was able to manage that, though, it would drain his already stretched power reserves most of the way to nothing. That was not a very appealing status in which to think about facing a death. Wait a minute. Max thought he heard something upstream in the sewer, something that wasn't just the sound of subsiding temple. It might be a guard. It probably was a guard. But he figured even that was worth a try. Hey! Max yelled. Who's out there? Somebody's alive in here! Shadows moved through the rubble in the rough shape of a person, thrown toward him by the light of the leaping flames. What? Max heard vaguely. Get me out of here, you nincompoop! From the direction of the person, Max saw a sparkling spray of different light, the source long and solid, the form of a sword. You, with the sword! The wreckage settled with a groan, wiping out the reply. Max wasn't sure, but he thought the man was starting to tear at the rubble. What? Max yelled. Say that again. Were you the guy upstairs? Yes, I was upstairs. Were you the one who ambushed Oskin Yale? Yeah, the voice said reluctantly. It was growing stronger. A clatter, a rumble, and the wood shifted further. A beam started to bend itself across Max's right knee. Hurry up out there or I'm going to crack a leg, Max said. I'm working as fast as I can. No, you're not. Use the sword, idiot. The sword? Yeah, the sword. The sword in your hand. A powered sword like that thing will slice through solid rock. Oh. The light swung wildly, making a full bass whining sound that turned suddenly to the screech of ripping wood. So the guy didn't know how to use his own sword. Not that surprising, actually, considering the trouble he'd been having with it before. Come on already. Let me concentrate, will you? There's fire coming down my neck. Yeah, Max said. Mine, too. A small pile of wood chips stirred just above his head and slid onto his face. 
Max shook his head, eyes closed, and most of the wood fell off. When he opened his eyes again, a new hole had opened on his left, and in the hole was a hand. Okay, Max said. This is more like it. Nice to see you. Just hold up that large beam on your left, and I'll try to ease out of here. Not so fast, the guy said. If I let you out, you've got to help me, too. What do you mean, I've got to help you? I'm in big trouble. I've got this problem with Gash. I don't believe this, Max said. Don't tell me about your big trouble. Whatever it is, your big trouble is worth about half a thought at the moment after the mess you've started. The mess I've... Hey, do you want to get out of here or not? Look, idiot, this is all your fault. What are you talking about? It was the gods. When gods start meddling around, don't give me that. The gods are always everybody's convenient excuse for things they've screwed up by themselves. Yeah, sure. The only free will I've had lately is whether to cooperate with Gash and maybe die, or try to walk out on him and certainly die. The fire was burning closer, and the beam was settling further onto his leg. The help Max was getting from his protection field wasn't going to last indefinitely. Max glared out at the guy, lying full length along the twisted path he'd cleared, his form silhouetted against the fire and lit from the side by the glow of the whining sword. Max took a breath and forced himself to speak calmly. You let him out. You know who I'm talking about, the death in the ring, and you let him out. The first thing you're going to do after you help me out is help me get him back under control before he pulverizes your city. Then I'll help you with whatever your problem is. Got it? Okay, the guy said quickly. You've got a deal. Let me hold that beam. He reached to his left along Max's leg, got his arm under the wood, and started to strain at it. The pressure lessened. Max had freed his left arm while they were arguing. Now he managed to squirm it down the narrow passage to grab a handhold against the rocks. He pulled with his left hand and pushed with his right, felt his legs slide, catch, slide, and hold up at the foot. One more time, Max said. The man heaved. A warning rumble sounded from above. Max gave a pull and a twist and a forward scramble, and then he was free of the hole and scraping along past the guy and then out of the guy's passage entirely into the open, fiery air. Behind him, the debris was visibly settling. Max spun, got the guy by the foot, and yanked. The guy came free with a yow, and Max shoved him to his feet. Over their heads was a solid curtain of flames. This way, the guy said, down the sewer. The water level was climbing again, now over Max's ankles. Downstream, Max said. Here, look. He scrambled onto the pile of debris. Next to the wall of the sewer, the pile was lower, with the flames above them and still off to the left. Favoring his right leg and fending off the wall with his right hand, Max clambered onto the rubble and looked ahead. Fifteen feet further down, the roof of the sewer resumed, unbroken, with a clear hole underneath it for entrance. Max took a breath and charged. Flame fanned him on the left, wood and stone shifted beneath his feet, and then he was sliding through the hole into the open space of the sewer. The sewer bed was thick with mud and sludge, but only a slowly rising trickle of water was making it past the jam upstream. Steam rose from the walls from the heat of the fires overhead. There were, Max was glad to see, no zombies in sight. The tunnel ran a gentle downward course as the north hill sloped down toward river level, and a hundred feet or so further along was an access cover. Max stopped underneath it. The guy pulled up next to him. Who are you, he said. Max, said Max. He looked back at the access shaft, then paused. 
There was something else strange about this guy. He concentrated, closed his eyes, and then suddenly he had it. Max put his hand up and touched one finger to the guy's temple. What are you... What is your name? Max said, using the voice of command. A shudder ran up the guy's body. He made a gargling sound in his throat. I, he said, I, uh, I... His head flopped to the side and started to jerk. All right, forget it, relax, Max said, dropping the voice. There's no time for this anyway. Didn't it ever occur to you that somebody'd slapped you with a spell of namelessness? The guy was moving his head around with a dazed look, but his acute distress had faded. A spell of what? What it sounds like, hides your name, keeps anybody around you from noticing you don't have one and that they've never asked you about it. Here, push me up this thing. The guy held out his hand, Max stepped on it, grabbed a handhold overhead, and went up the short flight of rungs cut into the side of the shaft. What did you just do to me? the guy said. No time, Max said. We've got to go find my friend Shah. Who's that? Zalzain Shah, who saved your neck too back up there, and who I'm sure is now in very lousy shape as a result. And then we've got to take care of the death you set loose, and we've got to do that before he gets his act together. Max reached the top of the shaft and put his hand on the cover. The cover was heavy, as usual, but unlike an ordinary cover, this one was vibrating, almost shaking in its frame. Dust and a roaring whistle sifted down through the cracks in the wood. The cover drummed against Max's hand as he applied his strength to it, and then his shoulder, too. I'm going to need a scorecard before this thing is finished, the guy below was muttering, following Max up the ladder. Look, Max, about this namelessness thing, you might as well call me, uh, the Creeping Sword, at least for... The cover popped, wobbled once back and forth, then lifted itself bodily and flew off to the side out of view. A flurry of leaves rushed down over Max's head, and behind them the force of a wind growing toward a howl. Max rolled himself out of the shaft onto the street. Lightning flashed behind him in the direction of the river. In the sudden light burst, Max could see a mass of churning clouds overhead, forming themselves into a giant wheel-shaped bank centered somewhere toward the wharves. He struggled to his feet against the kick of the wind. The head of the other guy, the creeping sword, arg, peered at the exit to the shaft and glanced around. Max leaned into the wind, wrapped his hand around the guy's tunic, and yanked him onto the street. The creeping sword, Max yelled over the wind. You got to be kidding. Hey, said the guy, looks like I need a name, and that one's just sitting around, okay? I know nobody's using it. Nobody in his right mind would dare, Max muttered. I think I like the namelessness better. But enough of this for now. You're going to have to find Shah yourself. What about the plan you were just talking about? The sword yelled back, coming to his own feet. It's out of date, damn it. A tree branch whipped past and down the street, followed by a tumbling ovoid door. This is what I was afraid of. Max had his eyes slitted and one arm out, like a blind man feeling for a handrail. There were purple curlicues around his fingers. The pillar of fire that had been Oskinyale's base was a block or two behind them in the direction they'd come, and beyond the crest of the hill, the fire being torn into long, leaping shreds by the wind. One of the fiery streamers looped toward the ground south of the Yale temple and further away. In an explosion of orange sparks... A new coil of flames erupted from someone's roof as the streamer lashed back into the air. Suddenly, Max grinned. Eden, I love you! He yelled into the wind. What? 
said the creeping sword, his mouth next to Max's ear. It's Shah, Max said. You can't miss him. He's got some sort of beacon on him, someplace in the street near Oskaniales. Just a second. Where are you going, and wherever the center of this thing is? Lightning flashed again. This time it was definitely over the river. Max turned to go. The sword caught his shoulder. If this Shah guy is such a good friend of yours, why aren't you getting him? Max spun, struck the man's hand back, then somehow had a full grip with his own hand around the sword's neck. The other hand, forcing back his sword arm, was holding him several inches off the ground, and was shouting up into his face. Are you planning to be helpful, or is the only thing you're good at being difficult? You want anything left of your city? You going to tell me you can take care of this mess? Lightning crackled behind Max. The sword's eyes, drawn past Max toward the lightning, went wide. Max flung him to the side and spun again. Visible now in the constant flicker of the lightning, spinning slowly in the air midway between the island of the Palace of the Venerants and the wharves, over the major navigable channel of the river, was the ghostly image of a towering castle. Max ground his teeth, bent over the sword, pulling him to his feet, and stuck an accusing finger in front of his nose. You find Shah and you keep him alive, you hear me? Anything happens to Shah and you're going to feel like a Shanatantra was your best friend compared to the trouble you're going to have with me. Wherever you go, I'll find you. You get the idea? Without pausing for a reply, Max turned again and broke into a run, wobbling in the still mounting wind, heading east toward the river. Shah, he thought. Damn it, Shah. But with the power reserves in the castle to draw on, the death might be unstoppable, that is, if the death managed to get to the power stores. The only person who might be able to stop the death before that was Max, even if Max hadn't done too well against him back there in the temple, unless there was some useful character wandering around he hadn't encountered yet, and what was the chances of that? My best friend against my goddamn sense of civic responsibility, Max thought, and the whole thing is probably a lost cause anyway, so what else is new? A funnel tube had emerged at the hub of the Wheel of Cloud, the lightning dancing up and down its walls, and the funnel was reaching downward toward the river. Max paused at an intersection, letting a tangle of wooden crates and a large bush blow past him down the cross street, then staggered ahead. Just as he reached the center of the street, the wind suddenly redoubled with an even louder howl. The force hit Max and lifted him off his feet, flung him ten feet to his right and into the side of a house, and as he started to slide to the ground, the world abruptly filled with sound, the sound of a vast hollow clang that rolled on and on like the boom of a twenty-mile-wide sheet of hanging metal. Carlini had not exaggerated, Max realized, as the waves of sound pummeled him from above and the ground surging in resonance pounded him from below. The sky was indeed ringing like a solid metal dome that someone had just struck with a rod ten miles long. At least, Max thought, this may make Rusingovaya notice that something rough is going on. The massive gong died away into head-stuffing echoes. Max struggled back to his feet. That removed one problem, anyway. Max had been trying to decide whether to expend a chunk of his remaining power in warning Rusingovaya that it was a reasonable idea to take cover, but he didn't think there was much he could add to the much more convincing demonstration of the gong. In fact, it also removed another problem, the problem of how Max was going to stop the castle from coming through. The answer was simple. He was too late, too far out of range, and the emergence cycle was too far gone with its own momentum. It couldn't be stopped, and the castle was materializing smack dab over the middle of the river.
Screams and cries were erupting all around, with torches being lit and people flinging open windows and other people beginning to run madly into the streets. Max cut around a man wrapped only in a sheet, gazing with his mouth open to his chest in the direction of the river, and pounded again toward the wharves. The tallest tower of the hanging castle was solidifying dramatically, color and substance filling it like paint spurted on a window from behind. The entire castle was accelerating in its counterclockwise spin and starting to settle toward the water. Lightning flashed, then a large, jagged cluster of it struck high up on another tower, the blue-white energy clinging to the surface and writhing its way down the walls like a madly creeping bramble bush. A red glow lit the rock foundation of the castle from underneath. A woman ran past Max in the opposite direction, yelling, To the roofs! To the roofs! with a great deal of good sense. In fact, Max suddenly decided, as the whole expanse of the castle curtain wall congealed and the wave of crystallization spread out across the rock, there was no longer a moment to lose. Just ahead of him along the street was a four-story building, shop on the bottom floor and residence areas above, the fourth-floor windows flaring with candles and the light of another torch sparkling on the roof. Straight behind the roof line was the center of the spinning cloud bank, alive with the strobe of lightning and the sinking mass of the castle. The wind had now begun to ease. Max reached the building, jumped onto a shuttered windowsill, caught hold of a protruding half-timber above his head, and clambered upward toward the roof. It was really amazing, Max reflected, how after a while you stopped paying attention to injuries when things got serious, assuming, of course, that you hadn't actually broken anything critical. He'd started off the evening with a torn-up arm. As events had progressed, he'd picked up more burns and fire damage, a mess of deep bruises, a badly strained leg, and maybe even a few cracked ribs and a ripped muscle or two, and yet here he was, still swarming straight up the side of a wall. You do what you have to do, he thought, or at least you try. The streets that had filled with people were now just as suddenly emptying again. Max reached the top of the wall and swung himself out around the eave. Ahead of him, at the center of the sharply peaked roof, was a small roof deck surrounded by a sturdy wood railing. Although his sword had disappeared somewhere into the jumble of recent events, Max had retained his climbing cord. He slapped out his knife and snapped in a dart, stretched out his arm, and activated the mechanism on his forearm. The dart arched up along the roof, and with a rapid whoosh-whoosh, the dart end of the cable wrapped itself tightly around the roof deck railing. Max belayed the cord around his waist and walked it up the slope of the roof. Three adults in nightclothes and a small child occupied the deck, a lantern on the floor and a trap door open at their feet, the harsh wind ripping at their garments. Their attention was totally focused on the river fifteen blocks ahead. Through the occasional gaps in the buildings, Max could see a flickering violet haze over the seawall and the wharves. At least somebody had energized the flood defense field. Gaps were showing in the clouds overhead, and the lightning in the hub of the wheel was losing force. A last spray of glowing colors filled out a row of crenellations on the spinning castle, the rock at the castle's base, already below Max's eye level, inexorably closed on the surface of the water, a tall breaker splashed froth on the upstream face, and as the rotation of the castle brought the dripping rock around toward the city, Rusingovaya seemed to draw its breath in one giant collective gasp. Then, a massive smack, 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 smack of swells slapping along the underside of the castle became an even heavier rumble. A smooth mound of water lifted in a ring all around the castle, growing tall, huge, 
Above the castle's rock base, above the curtain wall, above the lower battlements, the top of the mound breaking into churning foam and starting to curl, and with the greatest thud and thump and screeching grind of all, the castle dug itself into the riverbed and its monster wave rushed ashore in the midst of the wharves. Next, Chapter 19, The Castle of Death, 